Hello, and once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Puzzling Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for match five of our sports bracket. This week, we will be discussing 1984's The Karate Kid, as well as as well as well 2004's Wimbledon. Karate Kid is the one you've heard of. Wimbledon, you probably didn't know just until just now. I don't know. I was vaguely aware of Wimbledon's existence before the entire sports bracket. I super wasn't. And I assume that everyone is like me. I'm very slopsistic. <laughs> everyone is like you and grew up as the child of professors and was only allowed to watch PBS. Yes, that. No one knew who a Ninja Turtle was until college. Uh, you merely adopted the TV. <laughs> I was born in it. Molded by it. <laughs> Yes, that. Speaking of being adopted and molded, tell us about the Karate Kid. After a cross-country move with his mother, Daniel LaRusso finds himself struggling as the new kid. Initially making friends with some teens in his apartment building, they abandon him after Daniel gets beaten up by Johnny Lawrence, forgetting too friendly with Allie, Johnny's ex. Johnny and his toadies continue to terrorize him. Struggling with loneliness and anger, the building's fix-it man, Mr. Miyagi, reaches out to Daniel and teaches him bonsai as a meditative outlet for his emotions. Unfortunately, Things escalate further on Halloween, and Daniel is beaten unconscious. Mr. Miyagi steps in to defend Daniel. In the aftermath, Daniel and Miyagi decide the best course of action is to confront Johnny's karate teacher about the abuse. Unfortunately, they are not well received. The Cobra Kai sensei, Kreese, is just as much of a bully and says the only way to solve this is a fight. Miyagi is able to convince him to order his students to leave Daniel alone while he trains for the city karate tournament where they can compete as equals. Miyagi begins training Daniel through what seems like unrelated tasks, but teach Daniel balance and defense. The tournament arrives, and even with his limited training, Daniel makes it to the semifinals. However, Kreese wants to send a message and orders his student to illegally strike Daniel's knee and prevent him from competing in the finals against Johnny. Daniel fights through the pain, and even after more underhanded orders from Kreese, Daniel's able to defeat Johnny and win the tournament. So, 80s classic. Oh yeah. For good reason. It... It's really strong. Yeah. It exemplifies a lot of what makes 80s movies this particular thing. Yeah, it is just quintessentially 80s. All the tropes that you think about with 80s movies are there. And this is fairly early on, so I wouldn't be surprised if this kind of set the tone for a lot of those films that were to come later on in the decade. Oh, for sure. And I mean, it also spawned lots of sequels, the YouTube spinoff series. There's an animated series. Yeah, there was even a remake with Jaden Smith and Jackie Chan that was terribly misnamed. Yeah. Because he doesn't learn karate, it's kung fu. Although I've heard that it's, you know, a decent film. Yeah, it's pretty solid. It works really well as a reimagining. But we are here not to talk about any of the sequels or spinoffs. We are here to talk about the 1984 film that started all this off. Where do you want to start? This is a dense movie. I think I'm going to start off where the movie does, which is unfortunately a bit of a wrong foot. So the movie starts off in New Jersey. We don't even see any characters. It's just this car pulling away and waving goodbye to some kids on the street. And we hear voiceover. And we just slowly see this car chugging along uh, on this cross-country road trip. And we get dialogue between two characters of Daniel and Mrs. LaRusso. And that takes place through all of the opening credits, but it feels so unnecessary and feels like a thematically poor fit, especially since the first time the camera is inside the car and we actually see these characters' faces, we know everything we need to know that they just spent the last two minutes trying to convey. Mm -hmm. Oh, we made it. 
come on. This is it. This is the end of the line. You're telling me. Which sets it up on a bad foot, but the rest of the film is pretty great about more showing than telling, strong character choices, knowing when to get in and out of scenes. Yeah, honestly, this film has some great framing shots and being able to show you how fearful Daniel is of Johnny and his gang with how they frame shots where there's absolutely no dialogue. Almost none of the scenes in the film feel like they are stretched out, and very, very few of them feel rushed. Honestly, the biggest thing that felt rushed is the very end of the film, which is very abrupt. Very abrupt. I'm honestly wondering if there was maybe one or two scenes set in Newark with Daniel and his friends. So you get a sense of him being separated from them, and then they cut that for time or whatever, but left in the other stuff? I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's no way of knowing apart from doing the research, which I didn't do. I really like that Daniel's very hesitant about moving in, but when he gets there, it's actually pretty fine. At first, it seemed like a really nice place. He makes a friend. There's someone else who comes from Newark who lives there, all that stuff. It quickly subverts your expectations that moving in is going to be scary, and then it unsubverts them when we get to the Cobra Kai's, and it's like, oh, this is that kind of narrative. Okay. And on one hand, I appreciate it trying to do something a little bit different. But on the other hand, how quickly Daniel's new friends abandoned him for getting the crap kicked out of him seems weird. Yeah, I don't understand what it is about someone getting beaten up that makes you think they're not worth being friends with. I mean, I get it if it was like, oh, sorry, we can't be friends with you. We don't want to get beaten up by the Cobra Kai's. That would be understandable or still shitty. But they seem to be like, oh, this guy's a weakling. I don't know, maybe it's that Daniel kind of exaggerated his karate skills at the very beginning of the film, and that's kind of what leads them to abandon him, but it's still just, I don't know, it it feels like there's something going on the film's not telling us, because it doesn't just feel believable without explanation. Right. That said, the film has a weird streak of the victim being the one who's seen as lesser by the people who are observing their victimhood. It's weird. This and the stuff with Johnny kissing Allie and then Daniel being shitty about it. Although in the middle of that was kind of him not fully understanding the context. Yeah. I think part of it is is just the time period. Like yeah. This is solidly the 80s and that was just kind of the norm. Yeah. There are some parts that have not aged super well. Um, do we want to get into some of the more explicit parts that have not aged well and just get those out of the way? Yeah, sure. So there's this one point where Daniel is trying to avoid a confrontation with the Cobra Kai's and he kind of like grabs the teacher and he's like, hey, it was, I wasn't quite grasping this concept in class. Could you explain it to me? And he's talking about... Now the Plains Indians were a very primitive crowd. They were all over North America. Ooh. Yeah. Which is a throwaway line and the teacher... I get the windbag vibe from him, but yeah. still, it doesn't really get explored enough. So It could have been literally anything else. Like mm-hmm. You could have done it on like the French Revolution or something, and it would have been just as relevant. Mm-hmm. Think about how fascinating Bat Guano is or whatever. Yeah. And there's, there's a bit where Daniel is apologizing to Allie, and she's kind of coming around, but he says, that sounds like a yes, which is super red flaggy. Yeah. When that part came up, we just kind of had to pause, like, that's... That's a major fumble. It unfortunately knocked my opinion of the film down a peg or two. Just that line. Mm -hmm. And I mean, she is coming around. We can see that on her face and that does happen. But that line could have been many other things there. Yeah. I think 
part of it is because the rest of the film does such a good job dealing with toxic masculinity and avoiding it and just having that line creep in there from our protagonist who we're supposed to view as rising above those toxic social ideals Mm -hmm. and it feels crappy Mm -hmm. also while we're talking about romantic stuff i like ali a lot yeah she's a very compelling female love interest especially in a time period where they, they didn't spend a lot of time actually giving those characters personality traits they were kind of just oh pretty girl trophy to be one yeah i can't help comparing her to star from the lost boys who has lines i think <laughs> Yeah, she's actively engaged in this romance. She has a life of her own. She has friends of her own. She seems like a character who exists separately of this movie and doesn't necessarily need this plot to be someone who matters. Mm-hmm. And even though she has broken up with Johnny, she still knows enough about karate and karate tournaments to help Daniel figure out what to do in the uh, tournaments at the end, which is really cool. Daniel, look, everything above your waist is a point. You can head, you can hit the sternum, kidneys and the ribs. You got it? Yeah. Because Daniel and Mr. Miyagi, neither of them have been to one before. Yeah. I really, really feel like Ali should definitely have gotten a movie where she learns karate or something. That would have been great. Mm-hmm. I also really like the fact that up until the crappy stuff goes down at Encino Oaks, there's not a point in the film where she abandons Daniel and is constantly trying to help fix the situation with him and Johnny and try and alleviate that. And try to maintain a relationship with him and she doesn't doesn't seem like she's trying to fix him like when he messes up she's like okay cool when you're ready to talk to me i'll be over here not dealing with your shit yeah really strong female character another really strong female character is lucia larusso daniel's mom i love her she is like the quintessential 80s mom and i love her dearly but she's being very genuine with it her character definitely made not all that together. Like she moves out here almost on a whim for a computer-based job and almost immediately gets a job working at a restaurant instead. And there's a sense that she's trying as hard as she can, but maybe can't always keep up, but she's still trying and she's still there for her son. Mm-hmm. And she can tell how much or how little she needs to kind of push on him to get him to open up. Yeah, and her go-getterness is actually is able to feed the plot because she has to take night classes for the management track position that she's on at the restaurant. And so that allows Daniel to be, at the beginning of the film, kind of by himself the whole time and her to not really know what's going on. And then later for Daniel to be spending most of his time with Mr. Miyagi. Yeah, I wasn't actually clear how much she knew about all that. Like, she's there in the tournaments at the end cheering him on, but I'm not sure what point she found out this was all a thing. I'm kind of sad we didn't get a scene where Daniel just explains the plot to her and she goes, I'm sorry, he made what deal? (laughs) And also her singleness creates a space where Miyagi can serve as a surrogate father figure. And Mm -hmm. I think that was a smart writing choice. Having the dad not be in the picture at all works really well. Mm -hmm. And I think really... That's what makes this film so successful is how great all of the characters are. We have Allie and Lucille who both play very minor roles in the plots, but both feel like fully fleshed out characters and they have their roles to play. And even Johnny, who is the most 80s villain of the 80s villains. I'm not sure. I think if you have a dictionary definition of 80s villain, his picture's right there. But even he gets a little bit of humanity. Like, he's not comfortable with how far they're going to make this kid lose. They're not down with breaking his kneecaps, even though he does do that. 
being told to like you know go for the leg sweep the leg sweep the leg yeah by his weirdly sinister sensei who doesn't seem to have a reason why he's so sinister he's just like that mm-hmm. i will say this for johnny though his his turnaround at the very end just seems way too quick i just don't think he gets enough character growth and development to have really earned that at the end yeah which is unfortunate because i think that would have been interesting but i realize that this movie is already packed full of stuff Mm -hmm. honestly maybe leaving that development for a sequel would have been a better idea Mm -hmm. or like a youtube spinoff series set years later uh yeah although johnny's in a very different position yeah i've only seen the first episode but but while we're kind of talking about characters let's go ahead and move on to the major two characters of this film who are daniel and mr miyagi Mm mm-hmm both actors here, Ralph Macchio, as well as Noriyuki, Pat, Morita, are doing a fantastic job. And they so play good. And they play off of each other so well. Ralph Macchio has a very precise balance of being scared and insecure about himself as a boy becoming a man, but also being charming and charming, funny, leading Manny. Yeah. Like, he's just right in the right space for that. Yeah. That's pretty much what landed him on the map. He became a huge teen heartthrob in the 80s because of it. And he's just right in the center of that dichotomy between unsure and confident. Also, I'm not sure how much he does. There were a few scenes where it's definitely Ralph Macchio doing his own stunts. And I was like, oh, cool. I appreciate that. And then we have Mr. Miyagi. Noriyuki Marita, before this, was much more known for more comedic roles. Uh, he was had a role on Sanford and Son, Happy Days. Mm-hmm. here he's digging down deep there's still definitely some comedic flair there like mr miyagi is hilarious mm-hmm. his very poignant one-liners you too much by self not too good not by myself with you to make honey young bee need young flower not old prune but the scene during the anniversary of the death of his wife and child is heart-wrenching mm-hmm. both machio and marita are killing it as far as acting goes yeah and that scene didn't have to be in there we didn't need that scene to for miyagi to be an interesting character but they decided to stop the plot and take the 10 minutes to deepen that and it really really works it gives us an understanding why he would kind of latch on to this boy who was needing a male role model why he had that desire to step in and do that it makes us understand the sentimentality attached with the gi that is gifted to daniel on his birthday and it just gives us a lot of insight into this character who could have just been a very one note stereotype Mm -hmm. but is elevated and Mr. Miyagi kind of created the mold for characters like Splinter from the Ninja Turtles. Yeah, Uncle Iroh from Avatar The Last Airbender. Mm-hmm. It's a glorious performance. Mm-hmm. I will say, I don't know how to feel slash am not in a position to judge the pros and cons of his character and tropes relating to Asianness and the sort of like mystical mentor figure and how all that works. I don't know if this is a like good or bad thing overall how fits into like the zeitgeist so that is a space that we really can't comment on too much however we can get into a little bit of the 
race stuff. I think this film is a great example of the differences between cultural exchange and cultural appropriation. If you look at the two karate masters here, if you look at John Kreese, who is a white guy, a Vietnam veteran who very likely has very racist attitudes towards people of Asian descent Mm -hmm. because of that, and the incredibly toxic way that he runs his dojo. Where it's very clearly just about learning how to fight. Yeah. Whereas you have Mr. Miyagi, who doesn't start off trying to teach Daniel karate. He starts with bonsai. You have this pent-up anger. You have this loneliness. You need a meditative outlet for that. Here, let me help you. Mm -hmm. And even all of the training, it's not about fighting. Daniel's learning other skills. He's learning waxing the car, the maintenance of the fence and the decks and all of that. He's learning this balance and patience. And those will go on to help him in other aspects of his life besides just punching people. Right. Let's dive into some of the training stuff because the saddest thing for me about watching this movie was that I knew how the wax on wax off thing was going to go going. I've been in culture and that's a thing people know about. Yeah. If you know anything about this movie, it's that wax on wax off through cultural osmosis. Yeah. And you're going in that Miyagi was going to teach Daniel how to do stuff through tasks that seem unrelated, but are actually building up his muscle memory to put him into a position where he's going to be able to do karate really well. That's a really cool idea, and I wish I didn't know that going in so that I would have had either the delight at having that reveal or the excitement about figuring it out before Daniel does. Mm -hmm. The revelation of how that works is really cool, and I think it works both as a viewer but also for uh, Miyagi and Daniel as, as teacher and student because when you have a moment of sudden revelation that you figure out or you feel like you figure out, it makes the lesson more impactful than if you're just told it. That's a core concept of teaching things. Mm -hmm. Another little bit about the training. I love the scene with the fly and the chopsticks. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Uh, That's where you can see the humor that Marita brings to the role. Just Daniel's able to do it. And he just gets so upset. Walks up. It's like, you begin a luck. I really like that Miyagi wasn't the one who grabbed the fly with the chopstick. It's Daniel, and it's through almost beginner's luck. It's a really fun scene. It shows that Miyagi isn't infallible. He doesn't have utter ability. So it brings that comedy, but also kind of creates a, like a fun dynamic for them. It's kind of the opposite of the of the Yoda lifting the X-Wing. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I really like about how Mr. Miyagi is set up in this film is At first, they kind of call him, like, the building handyman. But at one point, he gets called the fix-it guy. There's a fix-it guy around you. Like, he's specifically there to fix people's problems. And I like that that is true in more than one sense. He steps in to help Daniel fix his problems. It's not necessarily a leaky faucet. It is more social isolation and lack of a father figure. But he still steps in to help fix that. And I just love that rather minor touch yeah it's a good bit Mm -hmm. and it also plays into the really good themes of regrowth and revitalization and renewal that run through a lot of this a lot of daniel's trainings are also renewing miyagi's home like giving it like a new coat of paint new fencing all that jazz which is really important for kind of the the rebuilding of the self thing that's going on it's creative and patient as opposed to quick and destructive Mm -hmm. 
But speaking of patience, there are a few scenes here that are just these incredible long takes. And because there are other compelling things happening, I'm not realizing what's going on until I'm like, wait, they haven't cut. These actors are just acting unbroken. Ralph Macchio, you're so talented. Ryoki Morita, you're so talented. The film is definitely very economical with its cuts. It will only do so if it needs to move the frame. But otherwise, it's fine just having a stationary shot and letting the actors work. Mm Mm-hmm. There's so much to unpack with Karate Kid. Like, we haven't even gotten into the underlying themes of Spider-Man. But speaking of Spider-Man, let's talk about a Kirsten Dunst movie, Wimbledon. Why don't you tell us about the plot? Okay. Peter Colt is a ranked tennis player, rapidly passing his prime and unsure of what to do with his future. He's accepted a job as a tennis instructor at a country club, but is not super excited about it. He decides this will be his last Wimbledon, but a chance meeting and fling with a young up-and-coming Lizzie Bradbury energizes him. They both climb the ranks and dodge Lizzie's overbearing father, who thinks Peter is a distraction. Peter's newfound ferocity allows him to defeat his best friend and inspires his family to reconcile their differences and come together to support him. Peter continues to succeed, but Lizzie's eliminated. Angry, she decides to return to America. Peter apologizes to her on live television before heading into the final with young jerkish opponent Jake Hammond. Falling badly behind, the game is suspended for a storm, and Lizzie returns to give Peter the encouragement to win. Years later, she has trophies, they have kids, and he has a job teaching the next generation of tennis players. First thing I notice about this film is how many currently relevant stars are in this? Boy, howdy. Irene Lamb is the casting director who was apparently a seer. So we've got Paul Bettany, Kirsten Dunst. Sam Neill. To be fair, like Dunst was a hot ticket item at that point. This is just a year or two after Spider-Man. That's true. And then we also have uh, Nicola Coster-Waldo. Who many of you will know as Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones. <laughs> then is kind of like the ensemble Dark Horse. We have... Peter's brother, played by James McAvoy, who is just this utter chud at the beginning of the film. Yeah, he's playing functionally Nathan from Misfits. Save me, Barry! I feel like Nathan from Misfits just, like, dissolved himself into mere atoms and spread himself across this whole movie. It has a very, like, body undercurrent, despite being very British. And then rounding out the cast, we have John Favreau as Ron, Peter's manager, also Jake Hammond's manager, everyone's manager. Pretty much. I use car salesman for tennis players. You know, I, I really don't care who wins. I mean, I represent both players. It's like asking me which one of my kids I love more. Which one of my kids do I love more? My daughter. I'll talk to you later. It's weird to think that just four years later, John Favreau and Paul Bettany would be working together for their first Iron Man film. This film feels a million miles away from that. It does. It still has a lot of those mid-2000s sensibilities. And because it is a film that is a multinational production, that's a little bit hodgepodgey. It has a very British script, but a very American camera style. Yes. All of the dialogue is very British. Like, I would totally expect to see it on a sitcom, but a lot of the camera work is very... American, even though the production company is Working Title. That will not mean a lot to many of you, but some of my favorite Working Title films are the Cornetto trilogy from Edgar Wright. So that kind of gives you an idea of what some of the camera work is like in this film, if you have not seen it. They do this very interesting thing where whenever Peter is getting into his own head and psyching himself up, either before or during a match, the camera gets in very close and it goes off on these weird dutch angles 
and things like that. And it's actually really compelling and it gives you this sense of anxiety and adrenaline and pent-up energy. <laughs> also, I like how you're just assuming that everybody has seen the Cornetto trilogies knows what that is. Like, if you have not watched them and are listening to me right now, pause this, go watch all three of those films, and then come back. Yeah, those films being uh, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and End of the World. Yes. At the very least, watch Hot Fuzz. Watching Hot Fuzz is for the greater good of mankind. The greater good. I keep forgetting that that like weird jarring editing is happening for those interior monologues, and then it comes back and I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> and it's this weird thing that feels the way that a panic attack feels where things just slam to a stop. Yeah, it's great use of cinematography, which honestly doesn't get used as nearly as much as it should. Right. And I like how the interior monologue is sometimes Paul Bettany talking, but sometimes the various voices of his doubters. Mm -hmm. Like there's a bit where Corey, the, the third person who lives with us, wondered why his interior monologue was an old woman. Prime of my life. How long Experience can Peter Cole keep playing this time? Stop it. Stop it right now. Just serve. Which... I mean, we've all been there. One of my favorite interior monologue bits that I think is really clever. So Peter starts the film being really afraid of stopping being a tennis player because he doesn't know what he's going to do afterwards. But by the end of the film, his interior monologue is just, Please, God, please make it end. And that's such a really clever shift to show how far he's come as a character. Mm -hmm. Why don't we go ahead and start getting into the characters? Sure. Peter's great. Yeah, Peter is surprisingly good. He's kind of from this mold of older wash-up player. We've seen it a few times in the bracket. But he's not necessarily, like, angry and bitter about it. He's just like, you know, I've been doing this a while. I'm proud of what I've accomplished, and I'm okay with it ending. He kind of gets this last-minute spurt where he wins Wimbledon, which is huge, because before he'd only ever been ranked, like, 11th in the world. This is his 13th time at that tournament but he sticks to his guns like no this is gonna be my last Wimbledon I'm, I'm getting a little long in the tooth mm -hmm. but he's also a very funny charismatic I mean he's Paul Bettany he's very charismatic in ways that are very genuine feeling he feels like kind of an odd character which fits kind of the slightly eccentric family he has yeah I also really enjoy the way the relationship progresses between Peter and Lizzie it doesn't feel forced or rushed or creepy because there's a pretty sizable age gap between them because Lizzie is a young and up-and-comer. This is her first Wimbledon. Paul Bettany, this is his 13th. Actors' ages, there I think there's like a 12-year difference or so. Mm -hmm. They're both technically old enough to make these decisions, but the gap is enough that it's a little weird to me, although Paul Bettany might be playing a little younger. Yeah, and part of what makes that work is that Lizzie is the one who pursues Peter towards the beginning, which at first it doesn't make a whole lot of sense why she would choose Peter out of everyone. But later on, they're having a conversation after the matches get canceled due to a rain for the day. And she talks about watching him at the US Open a number of years earlier. And I thought you were such a <laughs> asshole <laughs> to lose like that when you were playing so beautifully. <laughs> but I couldn't get it out of my head. I kept hoping I'd run into you. Which makes me more comfortable with this relationship in this context. That relationship's storminess also leads to the truly, deeply wonderful line where Lizzie shouts, Love means nothing in tennis. Zero. It only means you lose. 
<laughs> which is so corny, but I feel like if this movie hadn't said it, I would have been sad. Oh, and the thing is, they don't just use it as a throwaway line. It's actually used to make a point, which is why I can accept the corniness of that line. Yeah, I'm like, I think if this had been a bad film, I would have like thrown popcorn at the screen at that line. Mm-hmm. But because so much of the film was working for me, I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll go along with this goofy line. Mm-hmm. Let's get about the relationship is Sam Neill just being sort of 80s father figure what the hell sam neil yeah he's like a walking chastity belt <laughs> it's it's weird how up in peter's grill he is it is funny how weird it is and they like this feels like he's slightly underwritten maybe it's a well-worn trope of sports dads being very protective of their children and not wanting them to get distracted and definitely especially so for female athletes mm-hmm so it doesn't feel, like, too weird. It definitely feels weird because of Lizzie's age. Yeah. Partially the extent that he goes through. At one point in the film, pictures of them get leaked to the press, and they figure out that they are in the city that Peter grew up in, where he has a flat, even though he travels all the time. And the press is all outside, and Lizzie's dad, like, shows up to confront them, like, post-coitus. <laughs> God, it's incredible how much that actor looks like your dad. Oh, shit. Incredible how much that building... Shit! And Sam Neill is an odd contrast to Lizzie, who, like, you know, Kirsten Dunst, beautiful actress, Sam Neill, sort of aging velociraptor vibe, <laughs> just walking up to Paul Bettany like, you want a raptor hunt, it, it circles its prey, then it slashes him here, or here, or here. <laughs> then it rains, and there's just a shot of a parfait just sitting there in the rain. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, this film is great at Show Don't Tell. There's that parfait in the rain, there's Peter coming home to his family's house, and there's just a stack of unsorted mail, like, sitting at the front. And... It's weird because like, oh, no one's home. They're off doing stuff like, no, everyone's still home. They're just so self-absorbed that no one's managing to take care of it. Mm-hmm. His mom and dad are having an extended argument because she let herself be caught cheating to make him jealous. And so he's moved out to a treehouse and yeah. she's gardening at him. And his brother is working out to porn. <laughs> When we first meet Carl, we're hearing moaning noises as uh, Paul Bettany is like walking down the hallway and opens the door. And then they're just riding an exercise bike to porn. And this is James McAvoy, if we hadn't made that clear. It's what a delightful character. Yeah. And James McAvoy will later cause some problems because he keeps sneaking into his brother's bachelor pad to have casual pizza orgies with his friends. It's not an orgy, there's only four people, but whatever. Yeah, so he meets some people while he is going to place bets on the matches, specifically against his brother. Unfortunately, he keeps losing those bets. However, he's the brother of the person winning those matches, so one of the girls working there takes a shining to them and they start a relationship. It's tactical. If he loses, I get rich, and if he wins, I get late. It's skeevy, but he's so earnest about it that I kind of love him. Everything is above board. Everyone knows what's going on. Mm. They're all in that age range of, we're going to make some bad choices. It's fine. We're young enough. It doesn't matter. He also gets some character growth because at the very end, when Peter goes up to the stands to meet up with his family after his win, they're all congratulating him. Peter specifically brings it up. It's like, what's wrong with you? You're bad on Jake. Put it all on you, bro. 
wow, even this bachelor frog meme <laughs> turned into a person it can have character growth. Yep. And the other characters are fine and functional. Ron is good John Favreau comedy. Definitely the skeevy sports agent who's just out to make a quick buck. Mm-hmm. Dieter is a good best friend who could have maybe used a little more development, but is still very functional as someone who cares about his friend and is a good sportsman. Yeah. We have Jake Hammond, who is the final boss of Wimbledon. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, just, I really like that that's your way of understanding the world. You're right. And throughout the film, Peter and him have some run-ins. Specifically one at a dinner party where Peter and Lizzie are officially introduced and they're hanging out together. Jake makes some very unkind comments and Peter just punches him in the face. Yep. It's a very fake punch, but it's... <laughs> God, that sound effect. <laughs> ah! Jeez, really hot. But it is very cathartic. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the spark that leads to this really great relationship. Mm-hmm. Even with the age gap, I really ship it. Like, I really genuinely believe in them as a couple. And I'm like, ah, both movies this week made me care about the hats. <laughs> like, there's this really, really cute bit where they're in an old abandoned or disused tennis court near where Peter grew up. And they're miming tennis without rackets or balls. And at one point, Lizzie follows it over. Peter looks up and she's like, where'd it go? And he points up and the, the comet that's been kind of a running theme for their relationship is up there. And it's so corny, but it works. Mm-hmm. I adore that their love is like connected to this comet that appears when they start dating and vanishes when they break up. It's so goofy and I love it. Mm-hmm. One last thing I want to touch on for Wimbledon. As much as I like the character of Lizzie and I like the relationship between Peter and Lizzie, there's a little bit of manic pixie dream girl going on. And it's frustrating because I love everything else about it, but the way that Lizzie is invigorating Peter and the metaphor of athleticism equals libido that this film has not shied away from using, and it's frustrating because I think that's probably my biggest issue with the film. Mm -hmm. It's not the worst. I mean, it's not like she sets out to fix him or anything. It doesn't have that only existing for that purpose thing that like the worst manic picture dream girls have, but it definitely falls into that space. I I definitely see that. Yeah. I think part of it is that for the most part, Peter isn't a garbage human to start off with. Mm -hmm. He's a pretty solid person. He just has this one big thing and he's kind of a sad sack. Mm -hmm. And that's specifically the thing that Lizzie fixes about him. Mm -hmm. And I think... That's why it's leaning so heavily in that direction. I just wish that they would have gone a different direction with all of it. Yeah, I see that. But speaking of a different direction, let's pivot to extra innings. Sounds good. For those who are just dropping in, we do a quick match between the best gimmick and the best training montage. So, montages. Which Wimbledon doesn't really have. Yeah, Wimbledon doesn't really have a training montage unless you want to count... Lizzie and Peter's run the day after they leave that dinner party together. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of just Peter showing her around town. And it's more like a date, less like a training montage. Whereas the Karate Kid has an amazing training montage of after the revelation of Mr. Miyagi's family, Daniel goes and trains by himself. 
and he's doing all the same things that Miyagi taught him. We see him balancing on the boat. We see him on the broken pier doing the crane stance. And it's just really powerful how far Daniel has come from needing Mr. Miyagi's guidance to be able to like, no, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to do my final preparations for. Also, they're shot beautifully. You got oh, yeah. that like golden sky and uh, silhouettes. Yeah. There's a reason that they used that scene for the film poster. <laughs> yeah. With that being the case, I definitely have to give best training montage to Karate Kid. Oh, for week. sure. For sure. Uh, then the gimmick. I think it's also kind of a Karate Kid win. I mean, Wax On and Wax Off is perhaps the most iconic training thing out there. Yeah. The training gimmick of Wax On, Wax Off, sanding the decks, all of that is just so good. And... Unfortunately, the only things that come close in Wimbledon are having sex before a match to relieve tension. Yeah, I was going to say, like, True Love's Kiss or A Comet are our training gimmicks. But I think, in this case, it's still going to Karate Kid. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, overall, I think I like Karate Kid just a little bit better. Yeah, I think this has been one of the tougher weeks for us, this bracket. Wimbledon is a very strong film, especially given where it's seated. That's mostly due to it doing much better in the UK than it did in the US. Yeah, it's definitely worth seeing. This is definitely one we should watch both films. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of sad that Wimbledon is going up against Karate Kid because I think I would definitely want to watch it again to like pick up on more finer points. Oh yeah, Wimbledon unfortunately got posed by The Seed. If it had gone up against some of the other films that are moving on to week two, it would be going in their place. Yeah, we didn't even get into the whole like tiny elf child who serves as the film's moral center. <laughs> but I think Karate Kid, just because of its status as this cultural behemoth, just ekes out a win Pretty much everything surrounding Mr. Miyagi is so good. Mm -hmm. Part of it is also that Karate Kid set the mold for what sports movies are. This and Rocky are kind of the two like pillars upon which sports movies are built. Pretty much. So it's kind of hard to judge other sports movies that are not that against it when it's so very foundational to what we think of a, a sports movie being. But we'll get into that next time we talk about Karate Kid. Next week is going to be a very interesting episode. It is our showdown on ice. <laughs> so we have figure skating film, Blades of Glory, and we have hockey film, Slapshot. Blades of Glory is the one that we put on because I nixed all the Adam Sandler movies, and we had to have at least one Adam Sandler-esque film, and we didn't realize Kingpin was there lurking in the shadows. <laughs> so this is Will Ferrell, Josh Heater. They don't make it in as single figure skaters, so they go and perform in the doubles tournament and then Slapshot is a 1977 sports comedy about like hockey i've never seen it before but uh i hear it's good it's gonna be a rough week <laughs> 70s comedies man i don't expect you to enjoy next week i'm going to apologize in advance but this is how it worked out yeah you might go back to editing it that week <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to make sure you're informed as soon as that very frozen episode gets goes live, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Podbean, or Spotify. And until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>